Hi, this is Dan Kilbride. I'm the host of New Books in American Studies. At New Books in American Studies, we take a author of a book on any subject in American studies, which could be history, literature, political science, popular culture, or in this case, public health, and we talk to them for about an hour. Today, I'm joined by Mark A. Largent. He's the Associate Dean of the Lyman Briggs College and Associate Professor of the James Madison College at Michigan State University. And we're going to discuss with him his book, Vaccine, The Debate in Modern America, published by the Johns Hopkins University Press in 2012. Uh, So this is clearly a subject that's going to be on a lot of people's minds. Uh, I know as the parent of two autistic children, uh, I've heard a lot about this debate, uh, much more than I care to admit. Uh, And as this book suggests, it has a long, complicated history. And one thing that this book does very well is it takes very a very judicious take on on both sides of this debate from the concerned parents and even celebrities uh, to the public health professionals who tend to be very impatient with those people so mark largent welcome to new books in american studies thank you thank you for the invitation and for the opportunity to talk about the book we're glad to have you uh why don't you tell us about yourself where you come from and uh how you got to this book okay i'm a historian of science and technology Uh, i finished my phd in 2000 from the university of minnesota and what had interested me throughout most of my graduate school and in my early career was the role of scientists and physicians in public policy debates so i'd done a master's in African-American studies, and I'd looked at the relationship between science and black nationalism. Uh, I had uh, a PhD, uh, and I looked at the role of biologists in the American eugenics movement. Uh, and my first book had been a book published by Rutgers on the history of compulsory sterilization in the United States, uh, titled uh, Breeding Contempt. Uh, and in that first book, what had really interested me was the idea that states could enact laws that forcibly sterilized certain citizens who the state could argue would either themselves be better off without the ability to reproduce or that the state and the public in general would be better off if those people didn't produce children. Generally, that's the context uh, uh, it's discussed in terms of eugenics. As you get into it and you actually look at what the people were arguing, it turned out it was more complicated than that and eugenics was just part of a much larger set of arguments that had been marshaled in favor of compulsory sterilization laws. Uh, the sort of hallmark compulsory sterilization case was Buck v. Bell, decided uh, in the mid-1920s. And uh, one of the statements in Buck v. Bell, um, in the majority opinion by Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., was that if a state could forcibly vaccinate you, then a state could forcibly sterilize you. Uh, using all of the same arguments for sterilization that it had used uh, 20 years earlier in Jacobson v. Massachusetts to mm-hmm. vaccinate you. So the vaccination thing had really sort of been in the back of my mind and, and had, had interested me. And I was really working on getting that first book out to secure tenure and make sure that I had done what I needed to do. And once I finished the book and got tenure, my dean said to me, you know, if you this is the point in your life where you can do what not just interests you, but you can do it in a way you want to do it. The dissertation has to be done in a particular way, and that first book has to be done in a particular way. And so I decided, well, the next project I'm going to work on is something that, like all my other projects, interests me, but I, I, I would like to write it in much more of a sort of um, a 
you know, a way that is more readable, you know, less mm-hmm. like, just mm-hmm. a narrow academic focus. So I, um, as I, I started thinking about this issue of vaccines, uh, I, my wife and I had our first child, um, and you know, it gives you a uh, framing that's really fundamentally different. We, we had that first child uh, and experienced vaccines from a really different point of view. Uh, then I, um, I thought, well, I'll write about it uh, as one would write about, um, would as one would write in a kind of more literary fashion, which was was much harder at first than I thought it was. So it took me a couple of years to really sort of get into that mode um, where I could engage my uh, historical analysis with a, a more literary approach, and the book itself reads a much more sort of flowing kind of way. I uh, I didn't bother going after a uh, contract. I didn't look for a publisher. I just decided to write the book. So by the time I finished the book uh, in 2011, um, I handed it to Johns Hopkins, and they published it very quickly. They uh, uh, were happy to send it out, and I was I was happy to have them send it out. And uh, the book came out the following year, uh, and it really tells the experience that I had as a parent and as a historian, um, vac- trying to decide how to vaccinate my child um, before she was finished with. Her uh, second year, I became a uh, her sole parent. Her mom died, and so it really sort of concentrated it all on my shoulders. Mm-hmm. And as I approach it from that point of view, you realize that it's not just sort of one side is right and one side is wrong. It's, it's a pretty complicated issue that has a lot of historical baggage and a lot of both personal health and public health concerns. And I tried to convey that in the book as best I could. Mm-hmm. You make an interesting statement in the introduction. You write that the modern American debate over vaccines and autism is a proxy debate. What do you mean by proxy debate? Well, we do this a lot in public affairs. We seize on some issue or some claim, and we make that what the what what bounds the debate. Um, so we um, – for example, there's a complicated public debate about abortion. Um, and so we have narrowed that to a proxy debate about when life begins. And we, you know, marshal religious and scientific um, data to support a claim that life begins at one point or another. And it, that becomes what the debate's about, when in reality it's, it's much more complex than that. And that what motivates somebody to adopt one position or another or to try and um, – align different interests together. Uh, it's far more complicated than the, the narrow proxy debate would, would allow. It specifically with, with the issue of vaccines, we've come to make um, the question of whether or not vaccines cause autism. The central question that we use to analyze this very complex set of anxieties that parents have about when they vaccinate their children against which diseases um, and who gets to make the choices for those those vaccinations? Over the last twenty years, the vaccine um, schedule, the, the the shots, and the different kinds of inoculations that parents are expected to allow their healthcare providers to give their children, that schedule has grown very very quickly. Um, we, for the most part, through the seventies, eighties, and early nineties, were vaccinating against seven diseases: uh, measles, mumps, rubella, diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus, and polio. These are sort of the classic diseases that that um, we knocked out or knocked down with uh, with vaccines in the 50s, 60s, 70s. In the 90s, mm-hmm. 
this wave of new vaccines entered the market and then were adopted by state legislatures and by healthcare professions and added to the routine vaccine schedule. So now, instead of just vaccinating against those seven, we've, we've doubled that number. Um, we, there's 14 um, diseases or ailments that we vaccinate against, and the number of shots has gone way up. So a child now, by the time they start kindergarten, has had about three dozen inoculations uh, of about 50 vaccines, and they get two-thirds of those shots, uh, 25 of them, in the first 18 months of life. So parents who bring their children into pediatricians' offices find that they're getting four, five, and even six uh, inoculations at a single visit. Mm-hmm. And that's that, it's very disturbing for many parents. Um, deep-seated concerns about potential adverse effects um, and not unreasonable ones. I mean, one in three children uh, have m- uh, moderate to high fever um, after a vaccination. Um, the CDC talks about it is it's called fretfulness. That children become reportedly fretful, mm-hmm. uh, and if you've had a kid and they've you've vaccinated, yep. they yep. probably know exactly what that means. They're just yes, I, do. I, I always describe it as you know when my daughter got a vac- vaccination, she was just sort of a pain in the neck for a couple of days. She, yep. Yep. They get grumpy. Yeah, she's just off. She's not sleeping well. And, you know, okay, maybe that's not the vaccine. I don't know, but it certainly is the case that most parents point to those um, vaccine events, vaccination events, as as causal. Uh, related to the the adverse effects, and even if they're really minor, not that big a deal. Well, as the vaccine schedule got wider and wider, longer and longer, uh, and we were giving more uh, inoculations at a single visit, there were a lot of different concerns that were raised. And you know, the immediate and usually very very mild adverse reactions weren't the only ones. I mean, there were much more uh, po- problematic and complicated issues that arose. Like for example, we um, the routine schedule includes a, a hepatitis B vaccine at birth. So the child is this precious little perfect thing, and we're vaccinating it against a disease that the child probably will only be exposed to <laughs> through intravenous drug use or through sex. Right, right. And so, I mean, that the, if there's no if no one in the family has Hep B, there's really it's hard to justify it on the basis of why that child would need Hep B. At least that's how most parents approach it. From a public health standpoint, Hep B is one of those things that if we can get it out of the population, we can get rid of it. That it would be awesome. Uh, I mean, we would have freedom from that disease the way that we have freedom from smallpox now or the way that we've almost had freedom from polio. We keep sort of inching up to it and then kind of falling back again. But some diseases we can't get rid of. They'll always be with us like tetanus. It's in the soil and, and, you know, we need to vaccinate against it in order to prevent us from catching it. So the proxy debate of vaccines and, and whether or not they cause autism obscures a lot of debates about transhumanism and how, how many diseases should be vaccinated against and for what, how minor of a disease should we vaccinate against, um, short and long-term concerns, like about something like chickenpox. Um, who are you helping by vaccinating against chickenpox? Real concerns about the pharmaceutical industry and their political influence that they might have in setting up the vaccine schedule. Who is vaccinating? I mean, we, we really vaccinate 
very aggressively in that first year and a half of life. Well, why? Well, it has a lot to do with the way in which we've structured well-child checkups, that we're giving lots of shots Mm -hmm. at those Mm -hmm. very particular times. Um, There's a big gender gap. Uh, Women are much more concerned about the issue of too many too soon with vaccines than men seem to be. But that corresponds with women seem to be much more anxious about transhumanist issues than men seem to be. Men seem to think of medicine and technology as kind of conquering the limits of humanity. Mm -hmm. And we know that in the West, women are often the ones who carry the arguments against that as as a good idea. Um, There's some moral problems. For example, about half of the vaccines that we give use cells that were derived from aborted fetuses. Um, So there's a whole cadre of people who are are anxious about that fact and have moral concerns. These things are all very different. So one segment of the population that might be concerned about one of these issues like transhumanism could care less about, you know, the aborted cells issue and another one could care less about, you know, when we're vaccinating or how. But when you have a proxy debate, it's, it, it simplifies the debate into just two binary points. Either you're mm-hmm. worried that vaccines cause autism or you, you're confident that, that vaccines don't cause autism and you're not worried. And so it creates effectively two big tents that very different people can come together under. And for the vaccines cause autism issue, you have got very strange bedfellows. Uh, you have liberal, crunchy, kind of naturalistic people. <laughs> you have these sort of Hollywood, suburban, uh, upper middle class. Uh, you have the sort of Montessori uh, crowd. Uh, but then you also have um, religious, you know, very conservative religious groups in that tent. You also have very right-leaning libertarians in that tent. Um, so the proxy debate, while it obscures the complexity of the debate – um, it also simplifies it and brings together allies or as allies, people who would not be allied together at all. But in all of it, we never actually get to the real issues. So the people who can very persuasively argue, hey, vaccines don't cause autism. And then they're deeply frustrated that all of the people who are worried that maybe vaccines do cause autism, those people don't suddenly say, oh, OK, well, you've got evidence to show the vaccines don't cause autism. I guess we're all fine now right. because you've never dealt with the real core issues, which are much more complex and completely unstated because nobody's out there helping untangle these things and providing leadership on these very different kinds of issues that are hidden by the proxy debate. Mm-hmm. You, you uh, uh, trace the roots of the anti-vaccine movement to the 1990s, especially to the, the, the political fringes of both the right and the left, uh, especially regarding two of the major public health issues of the 1990s, and that is HIV AIDS and uh, Gulf War syndrome. Can you take us back to the 1990s and show where this anti-vaccination movement comes from? Well, so there's sort of two two issues in this. One is, and I I think I said it in the book, it's a little bit, um, not just irrelevant, irreverent, but probably, um, I I mean, I'm being a heretic as a historian to say, that the historical memory of 19th and, and even most of the 20th century anti-vaccination rhetoric um, weighs too heavily on the current discourse. That is, people who are addressing contemporary vaccine debates will frequently say, oh, there have always been anti-vaccinators. They've always been from religious groups or from libertarian groups or from these kind of crunchy left-wing groups. And you know they've always been with us, and this is just the newest um, – the newest expression mm-hmm. of them. And uh, I say 
I don't doubt that there's a, a common thread, but the, the reality of it is, is the situation that we're facing today is fundamentally different than the situation we had with anti-vaccinators in the 1880s. Um, you know, a, a century, almost a century and a half ago now, um, there were concerns about the power of government and there were concerns about the legitimacy of medical knowledge. Uh, and there were also some religious beliefs and um, some political and ideological beliefs involved. But most of that had really faded by the time you get to the 60s and 19, 1960s and 1970s, and even into the 80s. So what brought about the kind of rebirth of concerns about uh, Vaccines, and what I say is, it's the rapid expansion in the size of the schedule, which, which created a, a certain cadre of what I call vaccine-anxious parents. And those vaccine-anxious parents, who make up about forty percent of the American population of parents, those vaccine-anxious parents are looking for some guidance in addressing their anxieties. And what they're hearing from the public health community is, you have absolutely nothing to worry about. And what they're hearing from anti-vaccinators is, oh, yeah, there's a lot to worry about. And they get a lot of different data from a lot of different kinds of people, a lot of different stories. And certainly some of it's anecdotal. Some of it's logical, um, even if it's not supported by scientific or medical evidence. But it's satisfying to many vaccine-anxious parents to hear that vaccines may be problematic. And it helps justify their concerns and in some ways motivate their decisions to either not allow their children to be vaccinated or to alter the vaccine schedule or, or to delay that vaccine schedule. Mm -hmm. And the two places that I'd say that it really leapt uh, into the public consciousness was the with the issues of Gulf War syndrome on one side uh, and with the um, HIV AIDS concerns on the other side. And HIV AIDS chronologically is first. We had this mysterious disease that appeared in the early 80s. It's confined um, mostly to a couple of large urban centers and um, to a gay population and to a drug-using population. Um, and the question of, well, how did it – where did it originate from? If not from these, um, these social groups, what's, what's its origin? Something that by the early 90s had appeared is the claim that it had we, – we knew that it had come from a simian uh, virus, SIV. Um, and we didn't understand how it made the leap from simian to human. And one argument that was proposed uh, by a, a natural health uh, figure, a radio host who's actually still around today, Gary Null, um, was that it leapt it when we started vaccinating people uh, against polio with a vaccine that had been produced using cells from, from primates. The reality is in the 50s and 60s, there was not very good um, safety protocols in place in the raising of laboratory animals and in the testing, uh, the research and testing of new vaccines. And it's entirely reasonable to think that something like SIV could be introduced into a human population through that. We do know that there are, there's another virus uh, that is apparently not a problem, but that many humans have that comes from um, simians uh, that it had leapt from from uh, non-human primates into humans, um, we use that model. Some people use that model to suggest that polio vaccine, which had been researched with primate uh, biological materials, had had similarly leapt into it. That provided a kind of justification. Rolling Stone wrote a very interesting piece about it, um, which brought it deep more sort of deeply into the 
public consciousness and a real sort of serious concern that um, the same people, the public health workers who were um, working so hard to address HIV AIDS might have actually been the root cause of HIV AIDS. That mm-hmm. by their public health efforts against polio in Africa, that could have been the basis for this new pandemic that we have with with, um, with HIV AIDS. It's a reasonable story. Um, there's a, a very, very large book called The River that explores it using um, you know, tremendous amount of evidence. Uh, we have scientific evidence that suggests that that's not true. Uh, we had had that, but it was weighed against evidence that it was true. Now the best evidence is that it's not true, and it's largely because it appears that it had leapt from genetic analysis, that it had leapt the species barrier uh, long before there was a polio vaccine. I mean, almost a century before there was a polio vaccine. So it probably wasn't that. But the fact that there was that story allowed a certain segment of the American population to have access to a, a new way of thinking about potential adverse side effects from vaccines. Same thing happened with Gulf War syndrome. Gulf War syndrome, which has been one of those political diseases where we mm-hmm. argued that it even existed. I mean, it was about a year and a half ago that um, it was sort of accepted by the uh, NIH that it actually is a real thing. Um, the arguments over Gulf War syndrome, one of the claims was that this is a, an autoimmune disorder that was brought about by a kind of uh, by soldiers' immune systems being overwhelmed by the pathogens, by the pollution, and by the vaccines that they received uh, in the run-up to and during the first Gulf War. Uh, it appears that um, it was probably environmentally caused. Um, and they've narrowed it down to a number of things. But one of the claims is that it was a particular component of the vaccines that were given against uh, weaponized smallpox. Hmm. And again, you have a group of people. Now, think about it. You have a, two very different cadres of people here. On one side, you've got the HIV AIDS group, which tends to be left-leaning. You have the, the right. Gulf War group and their advocates, which tend to be right-leaning. So you have these two sort of merged together by the late 1990s. And they expressed some of the deep concerns that people had in trusting these vaccines, which by that point are growing in number, and in allowing their children to be inoculated with these vaccines. Now, that connection between HIV and Gulf War syndrome, you know, hearkening back as it does to the 1990s, is going to seem distant, and it may be well be new to a lot of people, because as you as you know, as we started this conversation today, this debate is all about autism. Yeah. Um, where did that link, the supposed link, between autism and vaccines come from? Well, the first thing that I want to emphasizes there, there's always this sort of argument that it's sort of one person's fault. Uh, and and, I, and I'll, I'll come back to this at the end, but um, there are a lot of different medical professionals who make a lot of different claims and they don't take root in the public's consciousness. Mm-hmm. And one of the arguments that I make in the book is that there's a tremendous amount of anxiety about vaccines because of the number of vaccines that we give to young children, what we vaccinate against, and how and when we vaccinate. So this this sort of very fertile ground for, for concern uh, is laid by this large number of vaccines, which we have relatively recently adopted. Um, the connection directly to autism emerged simultaneously in t- from two different places. And it's really amazing to see this sort of simultaneous emergence. Uh, one sort of node that it came from 
was in Britain. And the journal Lancet published an article by uh, a dozen researchers, um, medical, uh, psychological, uh, laboratory and clinical researchers, um, suggesting that the mental and developmental problems that children who are diagnosed with autism had might actually be associated with gastrointestinal ailments. Mm-hmm. We knew that somewhere between 50 and 80% of the children diagnosed on the autism spectrum also have some kind of gastrointestinal problem. The typical argument at the time, and in many corners still today, is that these children have gastrointestinal problems because of their behavior. That is, they tend to only eat certain things or only eat in certain ways. And because of that, it leads to other sorts of physical problems like with their gastrointestinal system. And what these researchers did suggested was that it was, maybe it was the other way around. Maybe something was going on in their gut that was influencing their neurological development. And mm-hmm. they had some analogous evidence to show that, well, yeah, we do know that sometimes with something like PKU, that a child's inability to process certain things that the child consumes can actually lead to developmental problems. And, you know, those, those uh, analogous biological pathways uh, had been around for decades. So these researchers posited an idea that it was possible that these children had something in their intestinal system somewhere from top to bottom uh, that might be leading to a kind of toxification of, of the child, which was causing developmental problems. And so they had published an early report under the lead author of Andrew Wakefield, who had been working – Wakefield had been – pretty well-known and quite respected for his work on um, Crohn's disease. Mm-hmm. And they published a piece suggesting that um, these children, they had found in these children's guts evidence of measles. And most of the children, there were a dozen in this, this first study, most of the children had not been exposed to measles. They'd only ever been vaccinated against it. So the suggestion was, well, maybe these children were vaccinated against measles and they never cleared the virus from their system, um, never developed sufficient antibodies to clear it from their system. And then the measles created the, the problems in their intestinal system, which then led to developmental problems. And it was basically turning the pathway around backwards. And when you look at what the other authors say, they said, well, this is the really novel thing is we're kind of turning the, 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 the causal relationship around backwards and, and opening a new pathway for research. Well, they had, some of them held a pe- press conference uh, with the release of this this paper, which was published in Lancet, a very uh, respected mm-hmm. journal in England. And um, they were asked, well, if it's possible that these children ended up with an endemic measles infection in their guts because they were vaccinated with the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, the MMR vaccine, what do you think we should do about vaccines? And Andrew Wakefield, who's the lead author, said, well, it would probably be prudent to split the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. So if a parent asked me what they should do based on our research, I would say, well, why don't you give the three shots separately? Give measles, mumps, and rubella independently of one another. That started a sort of firestorm, um, which led to some, first of all, the public health um, uh, leaders in England uh, retaliated by pulling the independent vaccines, pulling the licenses for the independent vaccines, um, And then the National Health Service in Britain refused to provide independent uh, vaccines. That is, you had to either get MMR or nothing. Uh, Then you had a group of private clinics step forward and say, 
well, look, if you're anxious about the MMR vaccine, but you still want to vaccinate your child with these separate shots, we can provide those shots for you. So you have a kind of marketing campaign from these private clinics in the UK, which really added to parents' anxiety because they're hearing, geez, you know, maybe I should be, maybe I should pay the couple hundred dollars to have my child vaccinated against measles, mumps, and rubella as independent shots, not with the MMR vaccine. Wakefield himself did not behave in ways that I think were politically astute. Um, <laughs> he uh, marginalized himself, and then he was further marginalized by the people who, who um, opposed him, uh, opposed his science, and opposed his public health efforts. Um, it became a left-right issue, a political left-right issue. In the United States, we have a political left-right issue with evolution and a political left-right issue with global climate change. This became a political left-right issue in Britain over the MMR vaccine and its potential link to autism. Um, the political left, um, because it was in charge at the time and it had said that the National Health Service would not um, provide separate shots, the political left lined up against Wakefield. And in Britain, the newspapers there tend to um, be politically charged to the left or to the right. So the newspapers and the party on the left uh, attacked Wakefield, the newspapers and the party on the right supported Wakefield. It became a very politicized uh, sort of debate. Tony Blair uh, got involved in a complicated kind of way because it turns out he had a, a young boy uh, who was of vaccine age for MMR and he refused to admit whether or not he had vaccinated with MMR <laughs> or with separate M, M and R shots. And there's a good reason to think that he, his wife decided to go with the separate shots because his wife's sister is a pretty famous um, uh, naturopathic uh, leaning person. Hmm. So there's, you know, speaking of this big ugly political debate and Wakefield's behaving in ways that are sort of problematic. And there's a investigative reporter named Brian Deere who's, who's a very aggressively out after Wakefield. It just became just an ugly, ugly debate and a political mess. At the exact same time in the United States, we had undertaken a systematic review of the Food and Drug Administration and its drug approval processes, uh, largely because of patient activism during the 80s and 90s. Uh, the FDA Modernization Act was uh, adopted and put in place in the late 90s, and the idea was to speed the, the, the time that drugs went through uh, development and uh, testing and then onto market. Um, HIV AIDS activists had something to do with that. Breast cancer activists had something to do with that. Um, you know, trying to get these drugs in the market more quickly. A uh, congressman who uh, represented a, a, a seaside district in um, in uh, New Jersey put a rider on the FDA Modernization Act that said that uh, all of the drugs that the FDA reviews ought to be evaluated for whether or not they contained mercury. The reason for this was because um, fisheries had been under fire um, and it had been losing market share because people had been concerned about how much mercury they might be mm -hmm. ingesting from mm -hmm. fish. So he wanted to say, well, look, there's actually mercury in lots of things, not just fish. So when they did that, they found that, oh, you know, lo and behold, we've been putting mercury in the form of a preservative called thimerosal in lots of different things, including most childhood vaccines. And we've been doing it from, since the 30s. Wisely, in fact, because these multi-use vials, every time you put a needle in to extract another uh, dose, every time you do that, you introduce bacteria or viruses into that vaccine and they can grow in there. So you can be giving these children um, 
badly contaminated vaccines. And we had actually had a string of deaths in the 30s, which is what made them start using thimerosal in the 1930s. Well, we find out, you know, there's this, there's this product in all of these childhood vaccines that contains mercury. And, oh, my God, we're injecting it right into kids' bloodstreams. And, you know, what's really intriguing here is that the symptoms of mercury poisoning are almost identical to autism. They, they are really, really similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you look at the timing of when children start to exhibit autistic symptoms, man, what have we got going on here? So it was prudent for the FDA and for the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, and for the Centers for Disease Control to write to uh, vaccine manufacturers in the late 90s and say we'd like it if you would as a, um, as a prudent measure get the stomerosol out of vaccines and shift from multi-use vials to single-use vials. And uh, most vaccine manufacturers did it relatively quickly. They actually saw it as a market trend that they needed to, to adapt to. And with the exception of a few one-off vaccines like tetanus shots and uh, many influenza vaccines, sort of the one bastion of erythromerosol still exists uh, in vaccines that could be given to children, uh, all of the routine vaccines all the routinely given vaccines for children are now thimerosal free. Um, they still contain other things that people are anxious about, formaldehyde, for example. Um, but we have very strong scientific evidence to demonstrate that there's no relationship between thimerosal or MMR and the rising number of diagnoses of autism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I suppose the, you know, the, the, the spike in uh, autism diagnoses over the past you know, 10, 15 years has naturally led people to you know, wonder you know, where this comes from. Well, there's a, that's absolutely the case. People most certainly have, and the timing of it. And, you know, autism as a diagnosis, and you said that you're the father of two children who have been diagnosed in the spectrum, it's a, it's a, it's a grab bag of symptoms. Um, <laughs> yes, it is. And so you can have two children, both of whom are diagnosed on the spectrum, and they can have very different challenges, um, exhibit very different kinds of symptoms. Uh, things that are syndromes are not diseases. Um, so if we, we, when we call something a disease like diabetes, we have some sense that there's a problem that this person has. It's an abnormal situation or a less than desirable situation compared to what we would consider normal. So it's a very normative kind of thing. We're sort of saying what is normal and then what isn't normal as soon as we make any kind of diagnosis, disease or, um, or um, syndrome. And we can see a pathway, a biological pathway that explains it. So we know with diabetes, there's a problem with insulin, either with its production or with uh, a person's ability to to marshal that insulin against carbohydrates. Um, and then that results in a set of symptoms. So we have symptoms and we have a causal explanation. And then that suggests a therapy, which in, in the case of most diabetics is either dietary changes or uh, injection with, with insulin. That's a disease. Mm-hmm. Um, Syndromes are constellations of symptoms. So it's a bag full of symptoms that if a person meets a certain number or a certain percentage of those symptoms, we say they are suffering from that syndrome. We don't know what causes the syndrome. We don't know if all of the symptoms are caused by a single, um, by a single problem. So with diabetes, we can say, well, you end up with very high blood sugar. That very high blood sugar causes circulation problems. It causes uh, mood disorders. And, you know, circulation problems and mood disorders, those seem like really different things. But if you understand the causal pathway of diabetes, you realize, well, no, it's a disease and those are its symptoms. 
But we don't know with the grab bag of things that we, we throw together in a, in a syndrome if those things are caused by a single or a set of biological um, processes or abnormalities. So we start out with complicating what autism is. It's not a single thing. It's not real simple like a broken arm or a, or a, um, a pancreas that isn't functioning properly. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a group of parents who argue that their children suffer from regressive autism. And those are the parents who have been most aggressive in pressing the notion that their children have been injured. Uh, they explain their children's development as normal until some point at about age two, which is usually an event, um, often a very high fever with uh, seizures associated with the fever that cause a fundamental change in the child's um, abilities and then the development after that. Uh, some of them talk about a window that they can pull their child through. That is, if you can address these these symptoms directly and in a, a effective way, you can get your child through this very difficult developmental um, roadblock that they've confronted. Um, they have very um, vivid stories. They usually start with, my child was vaccinated and then that night suffered from a very high fever and a series of um, seizures. That's Jenny McCarthy's story. It's a very vivid story. She has a child that has no, we have no evidence of a problem prior to the seizures that he had right after he was vaccinated. And um, we have a diagnosis that he's on the spectrum after uh, after that, those seizures. Uh, we have now court cases of at least two children um, relatively recently, last December, in which the court in the United States that's charged with overseeing um, cases in which people claim to be injured by vaccines. We have a special court in Washington, D.C., usually referred to as the vaccine court. And they look at the evidence and then they determine based upon a, a table of compensation uh, if it appears that the person was injured by a vaccine and if they were what their compensation should be. We have now two children who are diagnosed with um, autism. Uh, they have disabilities associated with that diagnosis, uh, and those uh, disabilities qualify them for it's several million dollars. Um, mm. one, one, because they're, they're uh, payments that are paid into the future for treatment, it looks like one will be about $9 million and the other one should be about $10 million, um, mm. in um Compensation, uh, both in the forms of outright compensation and then the, this extended support um, that comes entirely from the courts. The court says these kids were injured by a vaccine and it led to symptoms that we associate with autism. But it is a very, very, very rare thing. Mm-hmm. When you look at the number of children and the number of vaccines, the number that we can identify as being injured by vaccines is extremely low. So it's sort of like, you know. Sometimes a seatbelt becomes problematic in a crash, getting that seatbelt off or someone's injured because of the way the seatbelt uh, was on them when they were in a crash. Mm-hmm. It's not a justification, public health officials would say, for not wearing seatbelts um, any more than, you know, I have an aunt that lived to be 105 and she smoked her entire life. Therefore, cigarettes aren't uh, aren't uh, problematic. Well, that, that was just that aunt. On the whole, vaccines are safe and effective. Uh and seatbelts are safe and effective. Um, but yeah, there are incidents in which there are problems. And the, the problem with the proxy debate is it set up a situation where when we do have one of these incredibly rare exceptions, it has persuasive power far beyond what it ought to have logically. 
one of the things you discuss in your book is the role of celebrities and polemicists in kind of driving this debate. You mentioned uh, Jenny McCarthy earlier. So how have, uh, in the absence of real leadership uh, in this movement, how have polemicists and celebrities sort of stepped into that void and shaped this debate for better or for worse? You know, I think starting out by talking about the void is exactly the right way to think about this. Um, there has not been good leadership uh, anywhere uh, for parents who are vaccine anxious. What we have is a very polemic debate and on one side are public health officials who say vaccines are safe and effective uh, and that's the last word. And on the other side, this is a very small group of people who've really always been with us, um, anti-vaccinators in one form or another, and they are able to provide a, a kind of um, at least shoulder to cry on uh, for parents who are anxious about vaccines. They're willing to engage the issues and then lead parents in a direction that's, that's uh, in, in their favor. The reason that a certain small segment of polemicists have taken over is because the proxy debate really doesn't allow for any kind of more subtle engagement with these issues. And, and, and I struggle to do it. And mm -hmm. it's always interesting to see when I post, um, when I have blog posts, the, you know, who comes out of the woodwork and they, and, <laughs> you know, I'm getting an increasing number of sort of thank yous. This is, you know, subtle and, and, and thoughtful, but inevitably you get, um, the wacky, uh, extreme scientizers who just think anybody who doesn't believe that vaccines are always good and always effective and that people who argue against them are inherently anti-science. And then on the other side, people who are sort of very exercised about vaccines, about government influence and private health decisions, about the incredible profits made by pharmaceutical companies, about the um, questionable um, <laughs> ability of public health officials to actually be independent uh, when they've been serving on pharmaceutical company boards or when they themselves profit at times from um, new vaccines. You know, it all takes is one or two of those examples and, and you know, really shakes our willingness to, to trust those boards and to trust those companies and to trust those government officials. So you've got this highly charged, very polemic debate, and it's over these proxy issues that don't really engage the real issues. Uh, and it naturally brings out um, people who line up uh, directly with either side of that binary debate. And what's interesting is even when they are subtle, their, their subtlety is ignored. You know, so Wakefield, <laughs> Wakefield, who's, you couldn't get more polemic than Wakefield. Wakefield has said, I am an ardent supporter of vaccines. I think vaccines are good and valuable and important. And I, I don't want us to lose the public's faith in vaccines. Therefore, we need to be very careful that these vaccines are safe and that they deserve to be trusted. Uh, or McCarthy will say that as well. I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm anti this many vaccines this early. Um, but those, when you repeat those sorts of things, you, you know, you're effectively, uh, you know, arguing for the enemy. Uh, it's very difficult to to persuade people that you know what McCarthy's not a fool. You know, this is a woman who has three quarters of an undergraduate degree in nursing. She has more science literacy than most Americans do. Um, and she actually has a very compelling personal story that aligns with many American parents' anxieties about vaccines. But when you say that, it, it's tough. It's tough to um, say kind words about someone who uh, is aligned on such a, a, a polemic debate. I think the same thing goes with someone on the you know, pro-vaccine side. And I talk about Paul Offit, um, 
a great deal in the book. You know, Offit has a, a very persuasive set of arguments and scientific evidence that he marshals in favor of the safety and efficacy of vaccines and their necessity in preserving individuals' health and the public health. But he himself is adamant that people ought not be given choices to, to get out of um, the required vaccines, that we should close those loopholes. These people who um, in any way encourage people's anxieties are dangerous and they ought to be censored either uh, legally or at least um, shouted down um, as they engage these sorts of things. So you ask, well, where do you fit when you try to be more subtle about this? And what I, the, the approach that I took was the approach that, that I had available to me, and that was, as a parent, trying to make sense of a debate that just does not make sense. Um, right. Both sides have compelling evidence, and both sides are saying things I want to hear. They're both saying, if you want your child to be safe and protected – and you should do what we say. <laughs> what they're saying are opposites uh, from one another. And this is what every thoughtful, well-read parent confronts. And you have to make a decision. And I, I say, sort of point blank, you know, you have to decide. Uh, and deciding not to decide is still a decision. Yeah. Uh, so if you're going to hand this over to uh, medical professionals um, and your child does have an adverse reaction, you know, that decision is on your shoulders. If you're going to uh, hand this decision over to polemicists who are opposed to vaccines um, and something happens to that child, it catches a communicable disease that makes you or other people sick, that's on your shoulders. Um, the, the, the responsibility is on your shoulders. You, you have to actually take the uh, authority that's vested in you to make a, an informed decision. Yeah, and if anybody's interested in this issue, particularly about celebrities, I, I of course, the I encourage people to buy the book, but you also posted a, a really terrific blog post on the Johns Hopkins University author's blog about Jenny McCarthy, which was a really subtle piece, you know, just pointing out that this is, this is a woman who's not stupid. And granted, we're talking about a person who whose claim to fame before this debate was you know, posing naked on a toilet. But you point out that she is, you know, an intelligent person who has a compelling story. And so that, I thought that blog post was, you know, quite surprising and, and very eloquent. Thanks. And the point, you know, that I wanted to try to drive home, even though I did it very gently in there, and I, and I try to do this every time I talk about this, is there's a big difference between vaccine anxious and anti-vaccination. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the problem is, is that the, that the pro-vaccine voices conflate the people who are anxious about vaccines with the people who are anti-vaccinators. And so they'll call McCarthy an anti-vaccinator. And, and what I keep pointing out to them is you don't want to do that because many, many, many parents, and especially many, many women, we know that women make about 85% of the healthcare decisions for their families. Right. This is very much a women-centric issue. And thinking about how you address that population is extremely important. Um, about 40% of American parents express anxieties about vaccines. And if you tell those parents, well, you're an anti-vaccinator, you're pushing them directly into the arms of people who do not support contempor the contemporary vaccine schedule. Yeah. Do you think that is what so many people – you are pretty tough on the scientific community in your book. Um, do you think that they too easily stigmatize – parents who are vaccination anxious? In other words, do they not make this careful distinction that you're making between those who are anti-vaccine and those who are merely anxious about 
the vaccination schedule nowadays? Yeah, and you know that's not uncommon with the scientific community. And I want to really separate, you know, uh, clinical clinic-based physicians, uh, especially um, physicians who work specifically as family doctors or as, as pediatricians on the ones mm-hmm. at hand, and people that I would consider to be scientizers, um, scientists who have a very particular mindset that tends to be, um, uh, you know. It, Empiricists, logical empiricists, um, they tend to be relatively rigid when they confront these sorts of debates. And in other contemporary science debates, like global climate change is a good example of it. You know, the argument is if you don't accept the conclusions of how we ought to behave differently given global climate change, then you must be anti-science. No, there's actually lots of reasons to not want to give up a petroleum-based economy or to not want to give up on a certain type of capitalism, that doesn't make me anti-science. That means that we disagree about what these findings result in. The same thing goes on with um, the scientific community as they engage issues around um, these vaccine-anxious parents and helping them make decisions that are more in line with what the scientific evidence seems to suggest. By stigmatizing them, you're driving them in the arms of people who don't believe as you do and who will provide them ample evidence to support their uh, their fears and to mm-hmm. lead them into making decisions that you don't want them to make. So the reality of it is, is you can't treat this as a scientific debate because it's not a scientific debate. It's a political debate. And political debates operate under different rules. So the people that I'm that I'm harshest with in the book are people who think that this is a scientific debate and refuse to recognize that it's a political debate. And political debates operate under an entirely different set of rules than scientific debates do. Scientific evidence in a political debate is a piece of a much larger set of arguments that have to be mm-hmm. recognized. Mm-hmm. So what do you recommend for both uh, people who are genuinely nervous about vaccines and for the scientific community, where do you think we should go from here about this debate about vaccines? Well, I, you know, I've been very happy with the way that the uh, the American medical community has moved really over the last three or four years. And it's been led largely by the American Academy of Pediatrics. The AAP has taken a, a very judicious stand, I think, on um, on vaccines. One of the things that had started happening about five or six years ago is that some practices had started to exclude parents uh, and their children who did not follow whatever that practice's routine vaccination schedule was. And you can understand why a practice would do this. Um, any practice is under a great deal of financial and time pressure. Mm-hmm. And when we know from the from what little evidence and little research has been done on this issue, is that these practices are losing money on at least half of the vaccines that they give. When you account for the stock that they have to hold of those vaccines, the very hit and miss repayments that they get from either the states or the insurance companies on the vaccines, and then the high cost in terms of time and record keeping for now Mm -hmm. individual vaccines, uh, vaccination is a loss for most uh, pediatricians and family practitioners. This is not a moneymaker at all. So then you have the problems that result from these vaccine-anxious parents who you have to spend a tremendous amount of time with, not once or twice, but 35 times. <laughs> so the, the, the expansion of the schedule has stretched these, these pediatric practices to the breaking point. Yeah. And then the anxieties to have to deal parent after parent after parent 
around vaccines and then, you know, the calls because of the low-grade fevers that so often result from the vaccinations. These are just incredibly expensive, vital public and individual health um, products. So many practices had started saying, if you don't follow our schedule without argument, then we're kicking out. And they're just booting because they had plenty of patients and they were willing to get rid of them. Now, this tended to happen in mid-sized markets. Really large cities didn't do it as much and really small cities didn't do it as much. But mid-sized markets, and I live in a mid-sized market and I can tell you there's four pediatric offices in my town. And if you get the boot from one of them, they all tell you if you don't start with us at birth or you didn't have a child that was that is a sibling that started with us at birth, then we, we can't accept you. Huh. You're right from the beginning. Wow. So when you get the boot from a pediatric office, it's it's a problem. So, boy, is that a difficult dilemma, right? On the one hand, you can certainly empathize with the practices that are losing money on these vaccines and then the time that's spent on parents who are vaccine anxious. On the other hand, there's such compulsion. Um, I mean, these are not actual freely made medical decisions. Um, yeah. You're being compelled to make them uh, in ways – from, from very coercive tactics. So the AAP came out a couple of years ago, and, and this is not a, an incredibly rare thing at all. About 15% of uh, practices reported doing this. The AAP came out about three years ago and said, this is not a good practice because what happens when you have a vaccine-anxious parent who's booted from a practice that um, pushes the routine vaccination schedule? They don't go looking for another vaccine-militant group. Um, they go find the warm embrace of an anti-vaccinator. And the AAP recognized that. So, Mark Largent, we've taken up about an hour of your life, and I think it's only fair that we let you go. Uh, what is next for you? Right now I'm working on a, a history of RISE syndrome. Um, so I'm sticking with uh, childhood medicine. Um, RISE syndrome is the reason why we don't give children aspirin today. And uh, the manuscript is due in about four months, so I'm, I'm most of the way through it. Wow! And the the issue, impressive turnaround. Well, you know the the vaccine book percolated for a long time, and um, when it, it it finally crystallized, I had um, you know really been on a roll, and and, and I was excited about this this Rise project. Rise is pretty cool because it's a really amazing medical mystery that we chased throughout the 60s and 70s, and we settled on it being caused by aspirin. And as we started to do the the um, epidemiological research to demonstrate that it was in fact caused by aspirin, it disappeared. So mm. we have a story now about how rise was caused by aspirin. And if we don't give kids aspirin, they, they, they have a less likelihood to get rise. But we don't have any cases of rise to actually test that hypothesis against. <laughs> so you've got great parental activism. I mean, the, like the FDA and the medical community was saying it's not caused by aspirin throughout most of the 70s. But parents were sort of going in and vigilante labeling aspirin bottles in, in, in um, grocery <laughs> store shelves. And you know, there's some amazing um, – court uh, or some amazing um, hearings before Congress in the 80s in which people were brought in and told horrible stories about children dying from Rye syndrome and the, you know, the FDA and the, the, the NIH are being you know, attacked by the congressmen for not doing anything. And then two years later, they're being attacked for doing something. And <laughs> it's, it's just a great story on, on absolutely every front. But at root, it's, it's really the same issue. And that is, how do you operate as a parent and as a medical practitioner with uncertainty. And whether it's certainty or uncertainty about, about vaccines or about um, you know, the use of aspirin, you know, these practitioners and as parents, we know you actually have to make decisions whether you have all the evidence available or not. That's right. 
Well, Mark, thanks so much for talking to us today. Yeah, thank you, Dan. I appreciate the opportunity. So here on New Books in American Studies, we've been talking with Mark Largent about his book, Vaccine, The Debate in Modern America. You will find a link to this book uh, that takes you to Amazon.com, where if you buy it, uh, we'll get a small cut of that to help fund our activities here. This is a very short book, a very readable book. really uh, written for you know intelligent general readers so i really encourage you to go out and read it this is dan kilbride with new books in american studies and we'll see you next time bye-bye